0: Good morning. Uh, I'm, I'm Ryan. I'm one of the team members here at Redeemer, as David said. And um, we're, we're at the end of <clears throat> what has been kind of a six-stroke-seven-week series uh, where we've been looking at what it means to be resident aliens, what it means to be the church in a strange age. And um, a couple of weeks ago, <clears throat> uh, Dave Armstrong did a really good summary of where we have been in this series up until that point. So I'm not gonna cover any of that ground today, really. Um, But what I am doing is I'm finishing up the series today and I'll be talking about what it means for us to be a community of the future. Um, You know, I don't know what you think of when you think of the future. What What does the future mean to you when you hear that word? Um, you might remember, if you're old enough like me, uh, the 1989 movie Back to the Future 2. Uh, and uh, in that movie, you might remember Marty McFly was scooting about on a on a wee hoverboard kind of a thing. And uh, in that movie, it kind of it was forecast that by 2015, by October 21st, 2015, to be exact, that these hoverboards were going to be a reality for us. But, you know, we're not all scooting about in hoverboards, like, and, uh, you know, there's many reasons for that, the laws of physics being one. But, um, you know, it's kind of funny when we look back at how we have imagined the future um, in the past, you know, it's kind of faintly ridiculous. But, uh, you know, we we in the West have kind of had quite an obsession with the future. Um, Again, if you're old enough like me, you might remember the television program on BBC One, I think, called Tomorrow's World. You know, this program kind of ran for about 40 years from like 1965 right up into the beginning of the 21st century, and it charted um, our relationship to technology and science and uh, tried to imagine what the future was gonna be like for us. Um, It was pretty cheesy for the most part, if you remember it, and faintly ridiculous again. But, or maybe when you think about the future, you kind of go, this is me actually, you kind of go all dystopian, and uh, you imagine a kind of Blade Runner-esque kind of future, or The Handmaid's Tale, and uh, you get all freaked out by the world being overrun by AI, or if you know anything about transhumanism, where, you know, Men and machines are going to meld together and we're going to become like gods in this kind of weird kind of mixture of man and machine. Apple Watch, iPhone, pad. Just, just a second here. I need to ask Siri something. Siri, tell me about the future. Siri, tell me about the future. Oh, Siri, tell me about the future. Siri's not playing ball today. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> when I asked Siri about the future earlier this morning, Siri, Siri gave me a whole bunch of astrologers that I was the contact like. So there we go. Siri thinks the future is found in the hands of the astrologers. But um, I don't know. What does the future mean to you? Maybe, maybe it's kind of bleak for you. Maybe the, the future is kind of filled with dread. Maybe your imagination, you find it kind of running away with yourself and you get swallowed up by anxiety when you think about the future, not really knowing what's around the corner for you and your loved ones. Um, maybe for others of you in this room, maybe the future is bright, it's filled with anticipation and hopefulness and the aspirations that haven't yet been fulfilled. But here's where I want to go today for, for us as a community, as, as us as a Community of followers who are followers of the way of Jesus, we we are to be a community that embodies something of the future. You know, the message we have a message of hope that is of a better future. We're to be people who are shaped after the King of the Kingdom that is to come. And yes, we say the Kingdom is already here. Jesus really does reign. Jesus really is Lord. But we're also longing for the Kingdom that is to come. You know, we're told to pray for it. We're told to embody it. And we're to carry the message of the kingdom come. We are to be a community of a future kingdom. And to be a community of a future kingdom, we have to be a community that has a voice, actually. We are to be future tellers, not fortune tellers, like Siri was trying to tell me earlier this morning. We're to be a community that embodies the hope that we have. The very fact that we exist as the church communicates something, doesn't it? But we need to be aware that if we're going to embody the message of the kingdom come, we're going to have to examine ourselves first to be sure that the message that we embody as the church church is a true reflection of the king that we follow and we serve. You see, when you think about it, the future, it hasn't happened yet. Sure it hasn't. The future has not happened yet. The future exists only inside our imagination. It only exists inside the imagination of God, we might say. They've taken a flyer on that one. For us to carry the message of the kingdom come, we are going to need to use our imaginations. So what kind of future, I want to ask us this morning, are we willing to imagine as a community? I want to start this morning by um, taking a quote from Walter Brueggemann, who we quote a lot up here. We love Walter. I've got a man crush on Walter. He's he's the guy. He's an Old Testament theologian, but it's quite a dense quote. But I want to unpack it because he's going to help us diagnose what our condition is, and I believe he's right for the most part for the church in the West. Walter says this. He says the key pathology of our time is the reduction or of our our imagination, so that we are too numbed, satiated, and co-opted to do serious imaginative work. What what does he mean there? That's a pretty dense quote. I'll read it one more time, and then we'll unpack it a wee bit. The key pathology of our time is the reduction of our imagination, so that we are too numbed, satiated, and co-opted to do serious imaginative work. So what he's saying there is that the diagnosis of our condition is that we have a disease as the church, and this disease has robbed us of the power of our imagination, of our power to imagine a better future so often. We need to take our pulse, I want to say this morning, individually. We need to take our pulse, and communally, we need to take our pulse to give a clear read on what's actually going on. You know, what is this? Disease that Walter says has robbed us of our imagination. Well, first of all, he says that we are numbed, and we are numbed because we have bought into the lie that more stuff, more consumption, more information, more pleasure, more, 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 that these things will make us happy. We're numb because we get caught in the lie of the endless cycle of trying to make it, trying to get ahead of ambition, We're numb because we literally drug ourselves into numbness, whether that comes through food, through drink, through drugs, through entertainment, or through information, it doesn't really matter. We are numb. We can watch the news of famine in Liberia, shootings in America, of children being removed from their migrant parents at the border in the US, and perhaps we feel a vague tug on our hearts or a momentary outburst of outrage, <clears throat> but if we're honest, far too often it passes and we soon settle back into our numbness. And Walter says we're satiated. What does satiated mean? He means that we're satisfied. We be, we've got these God-given appetites that let us know when we're hungry, when we're thirsty, or when our curiosity has been aroused, we have an appetite to find out more. But... Uh, he says that we've been satiated, that we've had squeezed out of us our capacity to care for anything of any real substance. We simply don't care for the most part about the things that God's heart breaks for. We find ourselves full. We've been satisfied, but satisfied with what? What are we full of? And then he says we've been co-opted. And he means by this that we've had our attention, our hearts, and our minds taken away from the business of partnering with God and seeing his kingdom come. We found ourselves working for the culture that we find ourselves in. We, the church, we've taken on the characteristics of, and in so many respects, we look look no different to the culture that we find ourselves in. As Dave preached at the very beginning of this series, he said we're called to be a part of the culture. We're called to bless and seek the peace and welfare of the culture, the city around us. But we're, we've forgotten so often that we're called to be apart from that culture as well. We are resident aliens, as this series has been called. We are resident, we are rooted in this place at this time and working for the good of this city. But we're also aliens, our citizenship, is ultimately from another kingdom. So if it's true, if Walter's diagnosis is right, if we are numbed, satiated, and co-opted, how on earth are we going to recover from this condition? So over the last couple of weeks, Dave Armstrong took us through what it means for us to be a community of the ancient. And uh, he talked about how we have to look at look back in order for us to go forward. We find that as we remember what God has done in the past, as we embrace the practice of memory as a community, we can discover that that quote that he used last week, that our destiny is hidden in our history. <clears throat> and another way of saying that would be that our future is in our past. Um, he used that Uh, scripture in Jeremiah 6.16, thus says the Lord, says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. So we need to move back into the deepest memories of this place and activate those things that are hidden in our past that will help us build today. And when we look back and we see the symbols that God has imprinted in the history of this land and, the, and this place, we see that we don't need a new plan to address a current crisis, but more so we get to recover the primal identity that God has called us to be as his people in this place and at this time. And so over the last couple of Sundays, Dave took us through what we feel that God is calling us into as a community, shared about the rich spiritual heritage that we have in this land going right all the way back to the 5th century and those early Irish, that early Irish Celtic monastic movement that saw the kingdom of God and the good news of Jesus spread across this island and from here and other sites, monastic sites across the north of the British Isles as a move of God that swept across Europe. Ireland, we know, has always been contested ground, and it's no different today. In Patrick's day, those early Irish saints brought the message of Jesus and the kingdom of God, the warring tribes that competed for territory and resources, and he faced off against the pagan folk religion of the Druidic, um, the Druids at that time. Today, it's kind of no different for us. As we see in our own nation's recent history, the deep, cutting divisions of sectarian tribalism. We see a new kind of spiritual apathy on the one hand um, that's kind of filled with the cynicism and hopelessness of atheism. And on the other hand, we see this kind of new spirituality that's emerging. Uh, It's kind of like a DIY spirituality where any and every kind of spiritual experience is elevated uh, as the final arbiter of truth for the individual seeker. But as we look back, through the work of the Spirit in this island, we see this rhythm, this pattern of life that those early Christian communities shaped themselves after. These rhythms of breathing in and breathing out, inhale and exhale, of breathing in in prayer and then breathing out in mission, of intimacy with Jesus and then action springing from that into the world around, of worship as we lift our voices and our hearts to our King, and then reaching out and seeing justice come in the world around. And then as we've coined it in recent uh, days here of the presence of God and the poor. And recently we've been doing a little bit of work just what uh, about the history of the community that actually once inhabited this building. And there's such a rich Heritage that we actually stand in in this building, the, the the history of the people of God in this place at this time in this street in Belfast, and so as we reimagine what it might mean for us, we can look at what has gone before uh, and see what happened whenever uh, God met with the people in this very building. In 1853, sounds like quite a while ago, the Reverend William O'Hanlon. He was uh, the minister of this place, of Donegal Street Congregational Church. He wrote a a series of letters um, that were published in the Northern Whig newspaper at the time. You'll know the Northern Whig as a a kind of pub or a bar today. Um, These writings shone a light on the horrendous living conditions uh, in Belfast at that time and the streets around this very building. And he later kind of pulled those uh, letters together and he published a book that was called Walks Among the Poor in Belfast. I think it should be up on the screen. There's a slide of the first page. Um, It's one of the only sources that's available from that time period that tells the conditions of the people living in Belfast. And here's a quote here's a quote from that book which really struck us as we were revisiting this this week. He said this, he said, how few of the church-going, orderly, affluent members of the community have ever visited, or perhaps even heard of such places, talking about the, the poor around this building, mostly crowded with human beings in the lowest stage of degradation, to attempt to fully gauge this immense mass of human wretchedness and vice, so as to give any adequate idea of its contents would demand weeks. You know, it's a slightly different picture for us today, but not... Much, and I'm gonna unpack just a little bit of that in the next minute or two. I've heard stories this week of a brothel not two minutes from the front steps of this building, of the alcoholic and drug addicted who gather in these streets at night, sharing needles in a state of brokenness. I've heard stories of those searching for intimacy in all the wrong places, in venues around this very building. I've heard stories of communities held in the grip of sectarian tribalism, and they're held in fear and without a voice. Today, we are part of, this building is part of the New Lodge Electoral Ward, which ranks as seventh most deprived out of 890 in Northern Ireland. Seventh out of 890, and that's using a multiple deprivation measure to gauge that. Out of the top 100 most deprived, In Northern Ireland, there are 21 within walking distance, a half hours walking distance of this very building. 21 out of the most deprived within a half hour from this building. And that's only in the north and west of the city. That doesn't cross the river. And so what we feel as a leadership team in these days is that God is clearly re-communicating his heart to us for the people in the area around us. As we look to our own history, we find this hidden destiny for us as a community. We look not only to the rich, deep well of Celtic spirituality and the well of God's presence that is to be reopened through that, but we also reimagine what it means for us to walk amongst the poor of Belfast as the people of God who gathered in this very building once did have also shared a couple of weeks ago the prophetic word that we received recently as a church when we were at the Tabar um, gathering that we would find the broken, the hurting the prostitutes on our doorstep and we would become a community with a special measure of love and of grace to be a safe place for the broken and the hurting that we would be a space where people could come and encounter the living God and the radical love and embrace that's to be found in him we imagined what it would be like for us to be a house of prayer in the city, an urban monastery, if you like, a place where weary souls can come and find refuge and shelter, where the poor and the marginalized can find welcome, belonging, and a place at the table, where the broken and the outcast can find a community of grace, love, healing, and acceptance. What would it look like for this territory right here, in 101 Donegal Street, to be an oasis of calm in an exhausted city all around us? What if this place we imagine became a thin place, a place where the kingdom of God and the presence and power of the Holy Spirit is experienced in an unusual way? What if this place again became a deep well of God's presence where people could find their weary, burned out hearts, refreshed in Christ. I want that in this place. We want that in this place. Do you all want that in this place? We believe this is God's heart for this place in these days. And the beginnings of this are already happening. Redeemer's 10 next year. We've been here for about six years in this site. Like we, we heard only just yesterday, there was a, an amazing, crazy gathering happening downstairs yesterday of family matinee, the final one of, the, of this season. It was the best yet. It was bonkers. And some, some of you came down, it was brilliant. <clears throat> but we heard this beautiful uh, bit of feedback from one of the lovely Somali women who come down. She said that this place is the place in the city that they find most comfortable. They experience the welcome of Christ here. <laughs> and you know that. <laughs> this is not a, cl- a call for us to close the doors and to feel the warm and fuzzies as we sing little songs to Jesus. God help us if that's all we do in this place. And it's not simply to be a community. Of angry social action and protest. More like we're called to be a community that opens its doors and welcomes whoever we find there on our steps. We're to extend the invite to the table of Jesus, to those who may seem unlovely or unlovable or unlovable, that they may find him and encounter him and come to know the Father who has always Always love them. But look, there's there's challenges. Challenges for us as we dream about this. What are the challenges that face us? Well in our day the challenge we face is not so much like violence or persecution of a physical sort, but we face something worse maybe. And we talked about this already. We are numb. I am numb. <laughs> Our numbness doesn't hurt like torture might, like physical violence might, but in a similar way, numbness robs us of our capacity to be fully human. I want to ask you, Redeemer, have we forgotten who we are? Are we numb? Have we forgotten the story that we're a part of inside the imagination of God? The story of his kingdom come. Have we forgotten how to practice memory? Are we suffering from a collective amnesia? Have we forgotten that we're to be a community of hope? That we are to embody and live out the hope that we have in a better world that is already here, but is still yet to come? See, we're called to be a community of Of the future, a community that embodies something of the future that is to come. I don't mean that we're to be caught up in the anxiety of some better time that we're continually striving for. And then we get exhausted in trying to manufacture that future. But we are to be a community that are to be future tellers, not fortune tellers like Siri told me earlier, but future tellers, we are to be a community that by our very presence and our very way of being within the fabric of the city around us we communicate something of the heart of God and his kingdom. And yet the problem remains for many of us that we are numb. So how how are we going to address the numbness that we experience? I want to say that we can only escape this numbing influence of the culture around us when we learn how to enlarge our capacity to weep to allow ourselves to grieve, we must grieve firstly for the state of our own hearts and then for the world that seems so full of grief and suffering around us. We live in a world where at the border of the most powerful nation in the world, we hear of migrant children separated from their parents and thrown in cages, little kids that were 100% made in the image of God, just like our own kids. Maybe, as one person noted this week that I read, when your God is cruel, that you turn out to be cruel too as a nation. And Thankfully, the legislation got passed that ended that separation of the parents and their kids. Our hearts are moved when we consider these satanic acts on the other side of the globe. But what about what's happening on our very doorstep out there? The appropriate response from us to the suffering and pain and injustice in the world all around us and the hardness of our own hearts cannot be just some numb, dumb cheeriness. I've got to think about Jesus for a minute. He's shown us the way. When Jesus was confronted with the death of his friend Lazarus, he wept. Jesus wept. When Jesus drew near to his beloved city, Jerusalem, he wept over its condition jesus wept what is our response going to be to the injustice the pain the heartbreak the loneliness the exploitation the poverty that is happening under our very noses what is the response to our own numbness in the face of that if we find our own hearts numb then we've only got one appropriate response it's to ask god to break our hearts for what breaks his? The repent of our numbness and our lukewarmness. Do we even have an imagination for repentance when confronted this with these things? I'm challenging myself with all of this before I bring it to you as my family, my community. You may have heard of the prophet Jeremiah And uh, he was called the weeping prophet. And this was with good reason. Listen to this passage. As Jeremiah laments the state of Israel just before it was taken into exile in the Babylon and the temple was destroyed. Jeremiah says this, is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has the health of the daughter of my people not been restored? Oh, that my head were waters!" And my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the desert a traveler's lodging place that I might leave my people and go away from them. See, Jeremiah couldn't cry enough. More tears needed to be cried than his eyes would permit. Jeremiah knew that his tears were inadequate for grieving. Israel's impending death. And so he called for a public grief. It's not enough that he just weep. The whole community must weep too. If you think about your own pain and hurt and loneliness, you'll know that your own tears can break down barriers in your own heart like frustration or anger or bitterness. Just can't tears are a way of expressing our solidarity with the pain and the situation of others. My wife, Jude, always reminds me that tears are not a sign of weakness, being a weeper as she is. They are an outward display of compassion and of solidarity, of caring enough. When our hearts are broken, they begin to make way for healing. Without grief, There can be no newness. You know, the writer of Ecclesiastes said that there's a time to weep and a time to laugh. And then Jesus said that it's only those who mourn are going to be comforted. Only those that embrace the reality of death will receive new life. We might say that those who do not mourn will not be comforted. And those who do not face endings will not see the new beginning. And this should sober us as we consider our own comfort and our own numbness. And Jesus knew this. Jesus' grief was real. Weeping permits newness to come. It allows new beginnings. It allows the kingdom to come. But grief, of course, is not the end of the story for us as the people of God. We are to be people of a new song, the song of hope, the song of the kingdom come. We are to be the future tellers, as I've already said. There's a deep tradition in the scriptures of God's people producing eloquent, beautiful, liberating songs of hope. I'm going to say to you this morning that there's a particular role that those of you are creative in this community have to play in the prophetic imagination of this community. You artists, photographers, writers, storytellers, poets, songwriters, preachers, musicians, designers, I want you to hear this as a fresh commissioning for the new song, the rise up from this community. We were singing about it earlier. The new story the new project, the new poem that can help bring us to our senses. There is need for us to be brought to our senses, Redeemer. We need songs and stories of both lament and of hope, songs and stories that call us to grieve on the one hand, as well as songs that cause us to exhort God and just enter into joy and worship. You might want to think about it as a commission that you would get for a new piece of art. And the commission is to express a future that nobody thinks is imaginable. It's those of you in this community who have the ability to create, it's your task to keep the rest of our imaginations alive. You're the ones who can help propose the alternative future, the kingdom come. You're the ones who can be involved in the work of future telling. You can help bring people to engage the promise of newness that is at work in the history of God. But we've got to acknowledge that there are those in, the, in our community who find it difficult to hope. Those of us who can't help but give way to despair. And I want to say to those people this morning that we get you. You know, I, I understand moments in my journey where I've given way to despair. Because when you think about it, hope is actually absurd. The hope that we have is absurd in so many ways. It's almost too embarrassing to think about. Because it speaks of a future that we're told cannot possibly exist by the world around us. The future that resides in the imagination of God, the world around us says that's not the future that can exist. But for us, hope is like a refusal to accept the consensus opinion of the world around us about what the future can be like. Hope, you see, can be subversive. It can dare to announce that the way things currently are, are called into question. And for those of us who are encountering despair in these days, can I gently encourage you to look at the things that God is doing in our midst in these days, the things that he is speaking, the future that he is calling us into, and allow your hearts to give way to something else other than despair. Those of us who despair maybe just need to let our hearts be amazed by God again. Walter Brigham says that amazement can be the antidote to despair in the same way that weeping can be the antidote to our numbness. I make no apology that I've lifted a lot of this from Walter today. The new song, new song time is when weeping, hope, and amazement take a hold of us. This can help move us from numbness and despair and into life, into the new life of Jesus. Prophet Isaiah says some amazing things about the new song, about the new thing that God is doing. He says this, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Remember not the the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. And then the prophet Isaiah reminds us of the God that we serve. He says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. And then Isaiah gives a promise to us, those of us who are resident aliens, us exiles. He says, even youths shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. So we can either wait for God, Redeemer, or we can go ahead in our own strength. We can take the initiative into our own hands and end up weary, faint, and exhausted, or we can wait on the Lord and He will renew our strength. So we wait. Just to sum up this morning and finish shortly, I want to say that we need to realize that there are two types of imagination that desire to shape us and form us as a community. There's the imagination of the culture around us and then there's that of the the prophetic imagination, the imagination of the kingdom of God. If we do not practice living out of the imagination of the kingdom of God, if we do not practice being future tellers as a community, we may very well find that we find ourselves living in this state of numbness and despair that come from being caught up in this matrix, matrix that binds us. The essential question for us to ask ourselves as a church is whether or not our prophetic voice has been silenced. Has it been co opted into the culture of the day? Have we lost our voice as a community? This prophetic imagination, the future telling that we are to embody as a community, is to permeate everything we do from our teaching to our kids' program, from our justice initiatives to our songwriting, to our storytelling, from our pastoral care, to how we do life together outside of this Sunday gathering. I want to finish today by bringing us to the table. And I want to invite the band to to uh, lead us in a final song or two as we do that. I want to say, as we finish up today, that to participate at this table, to participate in the Eucharist, is to live inside of God's imagination. It is to be caught up in what is really real, the body of Christ. As human persons, body and soul, we're caught up in this Eucharistic imagination at this table, and by doing so, we participate in resistance to the culture around us, which seeks to numb us, to satisfy us things with things that are other than the reality of the satisfaction that is to be found in Christ. To participate in this table is to be a community of the future, a community that allows itself to hope in the coming of the kingdom that is already here, but is not yet revealed in its fullness. And just as I finally finish here, I'm going to invite the band up. Um, I want to read some words that were written 80 years ago, I think, roughly 80 years ago by the people, by the men and women who rebuilt this church. This, this church has been through many incarnations over the years. It's been rebuilt and blown up in the blitz and blah, blah, blah. But I think in 1937, they rebuilt something like what you see today. And um, those faithful men and women, as they stood there in this space, this is what they said and this is what one person wrote about how they felt at that time. As they stood there, can I invite you to stand actually? Let me invite you to stand before we sing. This is what was written. As they stood there, they felt that they stood on holy ground. They felt the pride of a glorious past and the call to make the future no less glorious. There was no reason why it might not be more glorious. In the kingdom of the Spirit, the greatest things could never belong to the past. The best had yet to come. God was still at work in the world and the purpose of Christ was not yet fulfilled. Redeemer, we stand In the prophetic words of the community that once stood in this place, we stand in their hopes and dreams and aspirations in the kingdom of God. Let's contend for us to stand in the days of the best that is yet to come. Let's pray with our whole hearts that God would do a work in our midst, in this community, in these streets in this city, in this nation, in these days. Let the days that we live in and the days that are ahead be the days that the best is yet to come. As we sing and as we take bread and wine as a community, if God is stirring any of you this morning with anything that you feel like would be an encouragement or a, a word or a prophetic word that our community would benefit from, needs to hear, then come and grab me. And after we've sung, we can bring those and see if there's a, a response that can be made. Let me pray briefly and then we'll sing. Holy Spirit, We love your presence in this place. We thank you that you are alive, that you are active, that you are working, that you are in our midst, that you are stirring us up, that you are speaking to our hearts, that you are whispering to us, that you are provoking us, that you are challenging us, that you are calling us forward into a better future, that you are calling us forward to be future tellers, tellers of your kingdom come, tellers of the king who reigns who is ruling and who will one day come again thank you father that we get to be the ones who get to share your table with others father we pray that you would do a work in our midst that you would so undo us that you would so fill us with your holy spirit in these days that you would bring us to our knees in repentance, in weeping for the numbness of our hearts, but that in doing so, Lord, you would cause newness, you would cause fresh life to spring forth from this place, that you would cause new life to well up in our own lives, in our own hearts, in this community's life, and let that spill out onto the streets around us and touch the lives of the people who so desperately need to know you. Father, we love you. Come amongst us, we pray. Bless this bread and wine. Bless it, Lord. Let there be grace for every person who takes of the bread and wine this morning. Let there be encounter when people take that bread and wine this morning, Lord. Let healing come when people take that bread and wine this morning, Lord. Grant people a sense of your presence as they come. Minister to them, I pray, Lord. In Jesus' name.